well, it's not a surprise that we are preaching today on Matthew chapter 6, uh, the Lord's Prayer we're going to be looking at. But let me just start with a few thoughts before we get into the scripture. And that is, for me, I've been walking with the Lord now, saved for about 38 years, and I'm yet to meet a person who says, oh yeah, prayer, I've got that down. That, that, that's no problem at all for me. I have a long-term, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, contentment and serenity and this wonderful time with God, and it's just always what happens as I go into prayer. Um, I'm not saying that there aren't people who are like that. I know that there are. I hope there's somebody like that here today because I want to talk to you after service. But for many of us, for most of us, a consistent, meaningful, transformative prayer life is difficult. It's hard. We have all kinds of different reasons that we can talk about that. A few years ago, there was an article in the Christian Post that spelled out specifically for Christian leaders why they felt that prayer was so difficult, that consistent I'm in touch with Jesus kind of prayer life. And here's a few of the reasons that they had. Number one is that prayer has become more about ritual than relationship. Prayer is something I've got to do. I'm a Christian. I know I'm supposed to. But it, it, it has lacked the authenticity and power that comes from real relationship. Number two, prayerlessness can be hidden. You cannot pray today, or this week, or this month, and other people aren't necessarily going to notice that. Now, don't put on your deodorant today, and people will notice that, right? But you cannot pray, sometimes for a very long time, and it goes unnoticed. Thirdly, we don't really believe that prayer works. If we get right down to the nub of it, to be honest about it, to, to drill down and say, all this praying stuff doesn't really work because I tried it and it didn't work, right? And so all these things can say, well, I don't believe it really works. And in some ways, that's especially difficult for people from Reformed theology because God is sovereign over all things. But brothers and sisters, the God who is sovereign over the end of things is sovereign over the means to the end as well. Amen? He calls us to pray. And lastly, we've never learned how to pray. Never learn how to pray. That's right. That's a good question. What? We've never learned how to pray. Think about it. The things that you want to get good at, the things that maybe uh, for your job or maybe when you played sports or whatever it is that you're about and you want to get better at, you get trained in those things. You work at those things. You see examples of how to do this and you read about it and you learn it. But many of us have never, ever been trained in prayer we haven't learned how to pray. Do any one of those connect with you? They connect with me. We're in a culture that rewards competence, it rewards power, and it rewards independence. And prayer is the ultimate declaration of none of those things. It is a declaration of neediness 
It's a declaration of weakness, and it is a declaration of dependence. And so a praying life is evidence that I can't make it on my own. Somebody say amen. Most Christians admit that. I can't make it on my own. I need the Lord every hour I need. We can sing the songs. But when we're living a mostly prayerless life, we're living out a whole different core belief system. And that core belief system is, I got this. I can do it myself. A prayerless life is the hard evidence of an I got this lifestyle. Something many of us struggle with. But thanks be to God for his word. Amen? Thanks be to God for the words that we're about to read together today. Let's stand up as we get ready to read together once again. We're going to start in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 6 and read this together. This is known by most people as the Lord's Prayer. It probably would be better known as the Disciples' Prayer. He's teaching us how to pray. So let's read together starting in Verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. A sober word and an instruction for prayer. Let me pray. Father, in the coming moments, I pray that you will help each and every person under the sound of my voice to clear the clutter from their minds all the distracting thoughts that will come, that are coming even now. And help us, O God, to hear what you want us to hear from you. Dig our ears and soften our hearts that Christ might be glorified in and among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title for my sermon today is Praying the Kingdom Prayer. That is the Disciples' Prayer but praying the kingdom prayer. I want to look at two basic ideas from this prayer before we go verse by verse into the prayer itself. The first thought is this. Verses 7 and 8 set for us the context that undermines what he calls here pagan prayer or unbelieving prayer. It it. It undermines this kind of praying where we got to pray long, we got to pray hard, 
we got to pray. Repetitious prayers, somehow or another, we've got to manipulate God to get him on our side. That's the kind of prayer, he says, you don't need to pray like that at all. Our prayers never inform God about anything he didn't know about in the first place. Amen? That's what he says here. God already knows about it. So in in, in this idea, we are not praying for relationship, but we pray from relationship with God. The second kind of all-encompassing thought on this prayer is this. Notice that this prayer is a collective prayer. In the Lord's Prayer, there is no I and there is no me. Read through that prayer. Every request is a collective request. It is our, it is us. This demonstrates to us, it shows us that a life of prayer is not just an individual thing, but this is a collective reality of the people of God gathered together. The Christian life is not a lone ranger life. The Christian life is not just about me and God. Yes, you've got to get it in with God, but it is about the coming together of the people of God. None of us makes it on our own. Left to ourselves, we won't grow in a healthy way. And so Christ bids us, even through the form and the pronouns that he uses in this prayer, he bids us to come together to be a part of his body, his beloved bride, the community of disciples, the church. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we can spend the rest of our lives looking at all the imperfections of the church. Are there imperfections? Absolutely, but not at New Life, right? Wrong. There's always imperfections. We can spend the rest of our life throwing shade on the church, critiquing the church. It's not this. They don't do it this way. I know my old church did this. We can do that for the rest of our lives, and while we do that, lead raggedy lives. Or we can make another determination. This bride blemished and all, problematic and all, with all her warts and issues. This bride is the one that Jesus Christ died for and loves. And I am a part of it. And so instead of spending a life in in the kind of critique that's meant to tear down, you become a part of the solution that builds up the church to make it more like Jesus Christ. And in the process of doing that, guess what happens? You become more like Christ as well. This is the invitation of this prayer. And so I want to begin to look verse by verse, starting at verse 9 here, with the prayer itself. So I'm going to break it up under three main headings. The first one is this, the environment of kingdom prayer. And that environment is relationship, adoration, acknowledgement, and worship. Verse 9, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. The very first words from Jesus as he teaches us to pray are revolutionary words. They are world-changing words, and that is our Father. There were hints of this 
in the Old Testament, but Jesus comes on the scene. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Gospels, Jesus blows this out of the water. God is not just the distant, powerful God of the universe who created things, but he is our Father. This is, at the same time, the greatest privilege we'll ever hope for in life and the highest calling you'll ever receive. Get this, y'all. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you are God's kid. You're God's kid. But we've got to get this as well. You're not an only child. Amen. Hallelujah. Hashtag glory to God. You ought to be happy about that. This is a reason why this particular prayer, as Jesus has laid it out, has been on the lips of the people of God since the very beginnings of the church age. We can go back to the first century. There's a document called the Didache, which means the teaching, which is a first century document that talks in part about what happened when the first Christians got together. And in that document, it talks about reciting the Lord's Prayer. This prayer has been for 2,000 years a part of the liturgy of Jesus' church. But he says in that opening phrase, not just our Father, but our Father in heaven. So this is a specific way that Jesus is able to convey exactly who it is that we're praying to. He's not just our Father, but he is this Father. He's our Father in heaven. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. He is the God who is known as El Elyon, or God Most High, from Genesis 14, 18. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He reveals himself to Abraham in, in Genesis 17, 1. And he is El HaKadosh, the Holy God, from Isaiah 5, 17. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the sustainer. He is the covenant God. Our Father in heaven. He is Yahweh who revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. He is the one who led his people out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage into the land of promise. He's the one who loved his children so much that he disciplined them under the hand of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but loved them even in their discipline and brought them out one more time. He is the holy God of the Bible, the one and only true and living God. He's all of these things, and he is our Father. The second phrase in these verses, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is the first part of a three-part series. There are now three requests. This is the first one that are that have God as their reference point. Then after that, there are three requests that have human beings and humankind as their reference point. As Jesus is laying out this prayer, it's not unlike the laying out of the Ten Commandments where the beginning part of the Ten Commandments dealt with how we relate to God and the last part of the Ten Commandments deals with how we relate to one another. So Jesus does that even in this prayer. So the first of those requests is this, hallowed be your name. Now that's not just a statement about 
what God's name is. That's actually in the form of an imperative verb. That means it's a command by God through Jesus to hallow the name of the Lord. That word means to reverence God. That word means to recognize that he is the God who is set apart above all. He is distinct and different and greater than any other. To hallow the Lord is to worship him as your source. It is to know that he is your life, that he alone is your hope. When we hallow the name of the Lord, our Father who's in heaven, we recognize that without him, there's no existence whatsoever. He is our hallowed, our holy, our perfect, our eternal, our almighty, our awesome, and our always right God. Amen? Hallowing God in both his transcendence, he's the God of the universe, and in his eminence, he is our father. He is relationally, paternally connected to us as his people is always the starting point for Christian prayer. We recognize his greatness. We recognize his nearness. It's an environment that evokes worship to the one and only true God. It's the environment of prayer. Secondly, as we go on to verse 10, not only are we looking at the environment of prayer, but the heart of kingdom prayer. The heart of kingdom prayer is the heart of submission or emptying of self-will. Verse 10, two requests here. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. This is the heart of kingdom prayer. This is a call for total submission to the king. Submission is a dirty word in the United States of America in 2019. We don't like the idea of submission. Submission says what you say I've got to do. I've got to come under someone else. We struggle with that. We struggle with that at times. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and say, you know you need to submit to God, right? Just just tell that to someone and then and then have them tell that back to you. You know you need to submit to God. You just oughta, you just gotta. There is no other way. You gotta submit to God. Talk to my wife. Talk to my wife some more. Go ahead, Pastor Tim. They just let they just let my wife have it. You gotta submit to God. She said, he didn't say Larry though. God, God, okay. <laughs> Thank you, sister. You're right. This prayer, when we actually pray this prayer. As young people say, for real, for real. If we're really going to pray this thing, this is an announcement of the end to our self-sovereignty. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It replaces the whole paradigm of a way of life that I can do what I want to do the way I can do it. Jesus says, no, you cannot. I want you to do things the kingdom way, to be part of this kingdom When Jesus first announces the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 3, 2, he announces it with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why does he announce it that way? Because he knows that our values 
apart from intimate relationship with God, are always in conflict with kingdom values. So we need to come under, we need to, he uses this word, repent. That is a word that means to change your life holistically because you come to a brand new understanding of what life is about. This is the call of repentance. To be a Christian, to be a disciple, is to acknowledge that Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, and therefore all of my preferences, all of my beliefs, all of my opinions that are out of line with his are wrong. It is to say that the default position of a disciple of Jesus Christ is that when my opinions are out of line with his, I'm wrong and God's word is always right. I may not understand it. Listen, we struggle. We struggle greatly with understanding God. Why, God, is this happening? Why, God, has this come into my life? I can't understand God. Listen, if you can fully understand God, there's only one way. That is that you are God. And I just want to announce to you today, those people in this room, you are not that. I am not that. Our self-sovereignty says, I've got to understand it before I'll ever do it or succumb to it. God says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not understand everything. We should try to understand, but we're not going to understand everything about God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts than our thoughts. He is the eternal, almighty God. Infinite. We are not. We are finite. So what that means is that this lordship, this coming under the umbrella of the kingdom is comprehensive. It deals with every single area of our lives. How we handle money, God, show me the way. What I do with my time, God, show me the way. What I do with my body, what I do with relationships, every single part of my life comes under the rubric of the glorious God where I come under and submit to him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in my life, in my family, in my church, in my community, in my country, in my world. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is coming under is demonstrated for us in a powerful way by the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorite scripture passages comes from Philippians chapter 2. And starting at verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But the, the scripture says, but he emptied. And he took on the form of a servant. Say, be, and then being found as a man, he, he, he gave himself to obedience, and obedience even to the point of death. He humbled himself in obedience, and even to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is God showing us, demonstrating for us in the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus emptied himself. He was the second person of the Trinity, eternally adored, eternally blessed, eternally get, get receiving the hallelujahs from 
everything that had been created, and yet he leaves all of that. He leaves all of his rights, all of his privileges, everything that he has coming to him as the second person of the Trinity and takes on a body like you and I that knows all of the hardship that we know, and then some. He took on more than you or I will ever take on ourselves. He subjects himself to all these things for one reason, the will of God to save a people for himself. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He lives this thing out. How do you know when God's calling you to submit your will to his will? You know it when the word of God tells you that your way, your preference, your values are in conflict with God's. Amen? So we know that. It's not time to rationalize something. It's not time to argue something. It's not time to pretend it doesn't exist, but it's time to come under the will of God. Years ago, uh, my wife and I, before we moved to Philadelphia, we were living in Rochester, New York, and I worked uh, for a Fortune 500 company. I was in their uh, national headquarters marketing it was the first job that I got out of college. It, it paid well. We lived in this nice little house. It wasn't wasn't big mansion or anything, but in the suburbs of Rochester, New York. We had, what is that thing called where you drive a car in, but you're not on the road and it belongs to your house? A driveway. We had one of those things. It's a very distant memory in my life. We had a backyard that I would get tired mowing. My backyard, the only way I'll get tired mowing it is if I mow it with nail clippers. Then I might get tired, but otherwise it takes about 10 minutes. So we, we, we were doing pretty good. My wife didn't have to work. We have two little ones, but I knew God was calling us to something else. We had been in a church situation where uh, our pastor literally went off the deep end into the worst kind of heresy you can imagine, and I was struck with the reality, I never, ever want to do that as a pastor. I want to get some real biblical training to help me so that if I'm ever in that position, I'll lead people in the right way and not the wrong way. And so God called us to leave all of that. We came to Philadelphia. I remember my father asking me, how are you going to support yourself when you get there? And I said, I haven't thought of that one yet. Now, I would ask the same thing to one of my children as well. But I hadn't figured it out yet. But we ended up figuring it out piece by piece. I worked with UPS um, the whole time I was in seminary. It was a great little early morning, 4 o'clock in the morning gig. Um, It it had health insurance for a young family for a part-time job. So I took that job. We made it through. Uh, We had a food pantry at our church, Spirit and Truth Church. One of my sisters is here from Spirit and Truth today. We were at Spirit and Truth Church, and we had a food pantry. This was in North Philadelphia. And my wife and I and our family used the food pantry more than anyone else because we were just trying to get two nickels to rub together, and we didn't have it, but God took care of us through that whole time. What am I saying? I'm not saying that I made some, you know, Jesus-like sacrifice to come here, but what was clear was God was calling us to something that was way outside of comfortable. And God wanted to be glorified through it. And so God calls us to put our way to the side and to come to him. This prayer is about submission to God's will, but it's also 
a declaration of the heart of a believer to see the fullness of God's kingdom established in the earth. This is what a theologian would call an eschatological prayer. That's a big word. What does that mean? It means it's a prayer that looks forward to God fulfilling the whole thing. And when he comes again, as we live in this fallen world, in fallen bodies, in fallen governments, in fallen everything all around us, we long to see the fullness of what Christ came for to be manifested in the world. We long for the day when the glory of God and the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the deep desire of believers, and that is what Christ is getting at in this prayer. This is our deep desire that we come to that place where God's will is done fully. It'll happen one day, people. That's what we live for. That's what we long for. There will be no resistance to the will of God. And more than that, there will be no resistance because obedience will come from total alignment with God, from every person in every part of creation. Nothing to stop God's will from being done perfectly. So here's a question. We consider this area simply this. What's one area of your life where you know that you are thinking or acting in a way that's contrary to the revealed will of God. We all have those areas. Here's, the, here's one test of discipleship. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, when you know that area, it will bother. You want to make it an issue of prayer. You're not comfortable with simply being in a place. You can't just say, well, this is just the way I am. But Christians are people who say, God help me. I want to honor you with my life. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Final area here, which deals with three different requests. The object of kingdom prayer, the disciples' necessities. Necessities of disciples from verses 11 through 13. We're going to look at three of them that are outlined here. The first one is material provision. Pastor Tim uh, gave a scripture from Proverbs 30, verse 8, where the writer of Proverbs says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Most of us wouldn't pray that prayer. (laughs) We'd say, Give me neither poverty nor worse poverty. Riches, I'm cool with that. But listen, Jesus prays in this prayer, give us today our daily bread. He's saying, very simply, provide me today with what I need to be able to live. It's a daily request for material provision in order to live. Now listen, For a lot of us, we're kind of not there with that type of prayer request many times. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into the refrigerator or the cupboards of my house and said, Honey, we have nothing to eat. 
which actually means what I exactly want to eat right now does not exist in here. But there's a whole bunch of stuff to eat. And, and Mama makes up this incredible meal uh, 20 minutes later, half an hour later. I'm like, oh, okay, there was something to eat. Most of us don't understand the reality of a life that is sustained daily and a daily need for provision lest we die. There's a word that many people, over a billion people in this world know well, a phrase called food security. In many parts of the world, I just left Malawi, food security is a major issue. The rains have been good. It's the rainy season in Malawi, and so the the crops are healthy. But in years when the crops aren't healthy, when the rain doesn't come right, there's going to be hunger and there's going to be major food security issues, and that's true in much of the world. As a matter of fact, to understand our Bibles a little better, we ought to understand that in the Old Testament, the people of God lived in an agrarian society where if it didn't rain, they wouldn't eat. So when you see over and over again in the Old Testament that this this call away from Yahweh to Baal, Baal was the god of the storm clouds. Baal was the god in the Canaanite regions that would give water to the earth. He was the one who gave produce and made things uh, plentiful. When it didn't rain and they knew that they might not eat, they turned away from Yahweh to Baal because they desperately needed their daily provision. It was their great temptation. But I think for many of us, we need to understand daily bread perhaps in a different way. What is it that you need today from God lest your life be taken away? We desperately need God, each and every one of us. Listen, brothers and sisters, I don't know what you think, but perhaps you think it was my alarm clock that woke me up this morning, or my internal alarm clock. I'm here to tell you today, that's not what woke you up today. I'm here to tell you today that if it wasn't for the Lord saying, I want his heart to beat a little bit more, if it wasn't for the Lord saying, I want her blood to flow through her body a little bit more, I want to keep him or to keep her, I've got something for them to do, and so they're not going to pass away in the night. It is God who keeps us every hour, every second, every minute of every day of our lives. We need God. Give us today our daily bread. Sustain me. Keep me. Listen, today, when your lungs fill up with air, you should thank God for that. When the synapses in your brain keep firing. Now, you don't know what a synapse, I may not know what a synapse is, but I know I can think. I know I can process information. And that is God who is making those things fire in my head and in yours. We need to thank God for that. Let me give you a little homework assignment from this, and that is this. Describe how aware you actually are of your absolute need for God to show up in your life. Write that out. Not now, but later. That's why it's a homework assignment. And then what changes could you make to live in a greater awareness of your minute-by-minute need for God. You see, God wants us to be aware. 
that if he doesn't show up today, I'm out of luck. He wants us to know that daily and all the time, we rely on him for life itself. Now let's move on to the second request here in verse 12. This moves from the material realm to the spiritual realm. And that request is this, for divine forgiveness, mercy, and love in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This moves us from physical needs, material needs, to spiritual needs. And this is a prayer request. This is a powerful one. This is one that we all need. I hope I'm wrong. I hope there's no one here that says, well, I don't really need to pray that one because I'm actually doing pretty well, thanks. I pretty much got it together. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything really, really bad. And here I am at church. Look at me. I'm looking fly today. Uh, I don't know that I need that prayer request. Listen, every single one of us needs this request. This prayer, this plea, this desperate Godward faking, uh, facing request for forgiveness is for every person in this room, everybody in Albany, everybody in Philadelphia, everybody outside of Philadelphia, every single person in the world, world needs this. Your age, your ethnicity, your economic status, your education, your shoe size, none of these things get you off of this request. If you're breathing, if you are consciously aware of what's going on around you in this world, you need God's forgiveness, his mercy, and his power for love. Why do we need it so much? I'm glad you asked. We need it because of our sin. You need it because of your sin. I need it because of my sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here is the amazing gospel good news that God, in his infinite wisdom, his unending mercy, and his perfect divine love, offers you forgiveness because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the only basis that any one of us will ever have for forgiveness. Someone had to pay the debt for your sin. If you paid it yourself, what the Bible's clear about is that means separation from God in a place we don't want to talk about called hell, but God has made a provision when Jesus Christ suffered all of the wrath of God in order that you won't have to suffer for your own sins. And hallelujah, glory to God, the good news is not only did he die on that cross, but on the third day he rose up with all power in his hands. He is risen indeed. But as we look at this request, it has a crazy catch to it, doesn't it? Look at the second half of the verse. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh-oh. That one may be a little more difficult. That one's difficult. What's going on here? What's happening with this? I thought that the Bible says that we're saved totally by grace, not by works. This sounds like it's a work. I have to do this in order for salvation. I have to do this in order for God to forgive me. I have to forgive someone else. What is going on in these verses? I don't understand. Well, let's look at verses 14 and 15, see if they help us. Verse 14. 
verses 14 and 15, this is Jesus' one commentary on this prayer. This isn't a part of the prayer, but this is his commentary on the prayer, the thing that he wants to underline for us to make sure we understand. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Okay, I thought I was making it better, but that looks like it just made it worse. What is Jesus doing here? Let's remember, first of all, that the Sermon on the Mount, this is a part of that sermon Jesus is giving a presentation on what the community of disciples looks like. And remember from the beginning of today as I taught, this is the emphasis of the communal nature of prayer in the kingdom of God. Remember, there's no I, there's no me, there's only an our and an us in this prayer. So what Jesus is painting here for us is a picture of a community of disciples where the forgiveness that God gives supernaturally flows not only from God, but catch this, hear this, but from each member of the community of God's people to others in that community. This is a place of forgiveness and love and mercy and grace, not just from the God who you can't see, but from the one another in this room who you can see. This is an imperative for the Christian life. It's not an add-on. It's not like, well, I've got the cake and I've got the frosting. I just need some little uh, sprinkles to put on top of it. No, this is a part of the substance. God's people are forgiving people. The willingness, the absolute willingness to forgive others is the tangible evidence that you've received and understood the forgiveness that God has extended to you. Jesus uses a parable in Matthew 18. We're not going to turn to it or, or look much at it, but let me just comment on it briefly. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. There is a servant who owes a debt. Some commentators say that debt could be over a billion dollars. It's an unpayable debt. And he pleads for mercy, and he receives mercy from the one he owes. And so he is set free from that debt. Say, you don't owe me anything. You just go on about your life. But this same one who received that great mercy, that billion-plus dollar debt, has someone who owes him a few bucks. And he says, I need you to pay me, and I need you to pay me now. Brother says, I can't pay you right now. I promise I'll get it back to you. I don't want to hear it, and he throws him into debtor's prison. And the one who forgave him the billion-plus dollar debt hears of it and says, oh, no, that's not going to work. And he goes after him and throws him into prison himself and says, you're not getting out until you've paid the last penny of this thing. Listen, this is what God wants to say to us about how we treat those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts towards us. We forgive them because we understand whatever they've done, whatever, however great that debt seems to be, it doesn't nearly add up to the offense we've made before a holy God. 
It's not close. It's not in the same league. It is so minuscule compared to how we have offended a perfect and holy God that we cannot help as believers who've been transformed by the love of God to say, brother or sister, I forgive you. I love you. Now, listen, I'm not saying that this is an easy part of the Christian life. I have not experienced this as easy all the time. There are times when we've been so hurt, so offended, and some of you have been through some horrific things in your life. I'm not saying this as an easy thing, but Jesus is clear here. We don't have a right to hold it against the other, but we forgive. That doesn't mean you put yourself into a place where you're trusting someone who has proven to be untrustworthy. You don't put yourself back in harm's way with someone who could hurt you. They've hurt you before, but you forgive them and you release them from the debt. Amen? It's a hard call, but it's Jesus' call. Listen, the proof that you believe that God has forgiven you of the ugly, awful, and immeasurable debt of your own sin shows up when you freely offer forgiveness to those who have wronged you. Disciples are those who recognize they don't have the option of withholding forgiveness. That's not a kingdom value. Last piece here. Spiritual protection, sanctification, and holiness. Verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a twofold request that God would keep us from temptation and deliver us from the hand of Satan. The NIV translates this the evil one. The ESV translates, translates it as evil, but has a text note that says evil one. I think that evil one is probably the preferred way of understanding this because it, it, it lines up with Matthew 4, 1 through 11. But He says, deliver us from the evil one. Lord, deliver me. Keep me from temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. The word deliver here in this verse is a Greek word called ruamai. It's a word that means to rescue you from acute danger. The kind of danger that apart from a rescuer coming in from the outside, there's no way you're going to get out of that danger. So he says, deliver me from this. Paul uses the same word in Romans 7, 24, when he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Who will deliver me? Who will rule my me from this body that is subject to death? He is struggling with his his flesh calling him back to sin over and over and over again. And he says, who can deliver me? But the good news is Romans 7.25, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? And we can pray that same prayer. God is able through Jesus Christ to deliver us from every temptation, from our trials. God is with us to deliver us. This is the final request of the kingdom prayer is one that should be on the heart of every disciple. If you've been following Jesus for more than 17 seconds, then you already know this is true. You know that you have weaknesses. You know that you have vulnerable places. 
you know that there are areas of your life that easily flow off track from God. And ultimately, you need to know that these things that tempt you from your flesh, that an enemy who is much greater than yourself will willingly comply with those things, put them before you, and bring you in a direction that will have you far from the Lord. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, who's able to deliver us from the evil one. 1 Peter 5 and 8 puts it this way. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's telling us that Satan is looking around for someone who's off guard. He doesn't care how long you've been a Christian. He doesn't care how much scripture you have memorized. He doesn't care what people call you or what your position is in the church. He's looking for someone who is off guard like a hungry lion that wants to eat his prey. But here's what you need to know. In other words... If you don't want to be prey, P-R-E-Y, then you better pray, P-R-A-Y. God can deliver you, God does deliver you, and God will deliver you if you want to be delivered. God, help us to desire to be delivered by sin as much as you desire to deliver us. Amen? We want the desire for God to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. This is God's will. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, uh, he says this, This is the will of God, your sanctification. God wants to make us more like him. That's true for every believer, every single one of us. And we need to pray that God will indeed Make us more like him. Deliver us from the evil one. Listen, maturing Christians can never be those who are holier than thou. Because if you're really maturing in Christ, you realize you can't be holier than thou because I'm not even holier than me. That, that I can't live up to my own standard. I can't make it. And as you walk with God in the light and the truth of his word, you begin to see the closer you walk with him, areas where you're off more and more, things that you never would have seen when you were far away. But as you go into the presence of God, you begin to see, oh my gosh, this is out of whack. This is out of whack. You begin to deal not just on the the level of overt actions, but God begins to get into your motivations and places in your heart where you know you've treated people or thought wrong or done other things wrong that no one else in the world would ever see. But we live for who? An audience of one. Amen. So let me bring this together today. Come back to those reasons at the beginning of the sermon why Christians don't pray. Number one, prayers become more about ritual than relationship. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you'll understand that your heavenly Father wants to talk with you. He wants to communicate with you. He wants to hear from you. And he wants to speak to you. And that happens in prayer. 
Secondly, prayerlessness can be hidden. Yes, it can be hidden from a lot of people for a long time, but eventually it's going to show up there. And right now, if you are living for that audience of one, God knows your prayerless life. and He calls you to a new life. We really don't believe prayer works. Listen, prayer changes things is a is an old statement, and I believe with all my heart that that's true, but not only does prayer change things, prayer changes you. If you have a life of communing with God, you will be changed from the inside out. The last thing we said, we never learned how to pray. Look at this scripture. Jesus is teaching us all how to do it. And let's help one another in this prayer. Kingdom prayer is the intimate communication of God's children with their father that expresses their desire to see his perfections replace our imperfections. It longs to see his will replace our will and to see his kingdom manifested in every area of life. Kingdom prayer trusts God based on how he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Kingdom prayer asks boldly for every spiritual and physical need. But it is not a magical attempt to manipulate God. But a way by which God brings us closer to his heart so that we can desire his will above all things. Brothers and sisters, I urge you as we read through this, What is God asking you? What is God saying to you about your own life and your need for prayer? Seek his face. Ask God to draw you into that relationship where prayer becomes that powerful, ongoing, sustaining reality of your relationship with the God who loves you. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today for your great love for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we can't imagine the kind of love that you have given to us. It's beyond what we could have ever hoped for. Lord, I pray that you'll use your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will make this church even more a praying church of people who are helping one another to grow in prayer. We need one another so desperately. Lord, let us be a people who come often to drink from the well of your grace and seek your face with our hearts and our minds. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name.